Welcome to ADK After Hours. I'm Luis Rodriguez, an imposter posing as a podcast host. In this episode, I speak with therapist Hannah Bocher. Our goal was to get really concrete about the types of mental health issues people interested in effective altruism face and the tools Hannah uses to address them in her therapy practice. Hannah practices a lot of acceptance and commitment therapy, which focuses on accepting difficult thoughts and feelings rather than challenging them, and commits to acting in line with one's values even when those internal experiences push you to act otherwise. To really explore how Hannah helps her clients, we wanted to use loads of specific real-world examples. But to protect her clients' confidentiality, we primarily focused on issues I've struggled with myself as a result of my engagement with EA, which made for an unusually personal conversation that's less like an interview and more like a therapy session. This format ended up being so unlike our 80,000 Hours podcast episodes, and the conversation was so narrowly focused on mental health struggles in effective altruism in particular, that we decided it was a better fit for After Hours. So in this interview-turned-therapy session, Hannah and I discuss the effectiveness of therapy and tips for finding a therapist, moral demandingness, internal family systems-style therapy, motivation and burnout, exposure therapy, grappling with world problems and X-risk, perfectionism and imposter syndrome, and the risk of over-intellectualizing. Okay, here's our conversation. Hi, everyone. I'm here with Hannah. Hannah is a clinical psychologist who primarily works with people trying to do good with their careers. She did her undergraduate studies at Brown before getting her PhD at Boston University, where her doctoral research focused on transdiagnostic interventions for emotional disorders, which are treatments that can be used to help people struggling with tendencies that underlie a range of mental health symptoms. So yeah, thanks for coming on the podcast, Hannah. Thanks for having me. So we often interview people working directly on kind of pressing global problems. So things like global pandemics, um, AI safety, global health. But this interview, we're going to do a bit differently. So we're not going to talk directly about global pressing problems. Instead, we're going to talk kind of about the mental health struggles that people trying to work on those pressing problems sometimes experience. Before we go any further, though, um, as we were kind of prepping for this episode, you flagged that it can be tricky to talk about mental health issues while practicing as a clinical psychologist, because, of course, you don't want to violate anyone's privacy. So, yeah, I basically wanted to be really explicit with our listeners about the workaround that we've planned. So we're going to yeah, make very explicitly from the beginning that we won't talk about specific people you've worked with. And we'll, we'll instead just use hypothetical people with concerns that are kind of common in the people you work with um, or common in people that you know are trying to do good with their careers. And if I have any relevant life experiences, we'll sometimes um, use that as kind of an example. Does that all sound right, Hannah? Yeah, that sounds good. The thing I'd add here, too, is I am going to give a ton of advice, and my hope is that it will be useful to listeners and at the same time, I recognize that everyone is working with their own experience. So my hope is that listeners will feel empowered to take what's useful, leave the rest, and certainly listen to your experience and consult with your providers if you have them for personalized advice. Yeah, great. Great addition. What do we know about kind of the effectiveness of, of therapy? 
Yeah. So broadly speaking, we have known for a long time, and it's not controversial, that psychotherapy is efficacious and effective. So under control settings and less controlled settings. And in meta-analytic evidence, the effect size of psychotherapy is approximately 0.8 in comparison to no treatment. And that's like conventionally considered a large effect size. Another way to say this would be like, in comparison to not getting therapy, getting therapy explains like 14%-ish of the outcomes in randomized controlled trials. And how does it compare to other interventions that might help people with their mental health? Yeah. So I actually don't have like factoids on hand here, but I can say 14% might not sound great uh, depending on what your priors are, but this is actually really good for healthcare. It's it's on par with or better than effects of medications, both psychiatric and medically, and it's superior to like plenty of medical interventions that are considered effective. Worthwhile. Okay. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that is helpful. I don't think I had a um, very strong reaction to 14% either way, but... What do we know about um, how effective different like sort of types of therapy are? Are those compared in studies? Yes, these are definitely compared head to head. And something that's really interesting here is that specific treatment ingredients or therapeutic modalities are actually not strong predictors of better outcomes in psychotherapy. Right. Okay. So, so this is a thing I've actually heard before, and it basically totally blew my mind. I I don't know where I got it, but I I just like really strongly had the impression that like CBT, for example, was like a much more evidence-backed therapeutic approach than than some others. So is it that any kind of therapy is just equally good? Or is it that there are just like other things that explain variation in um, how helpful people find therapy? Well, you're, you're definitely not alone in having that impression. Um, academic psychology and practicing clinicians don't do a great job of communicating this idea that, that different modalities uh, don't predict better outcomes. And like CBT is an example where there happens to be like a tremendous literature on CBT being efficacious, uh, but that's not the same thing as saying that it's better than all other modalities, right? So... What's going on here is that there are other factors that contribute more to outcome, basically, and they don't seem tethered to exactly what modality is being done. Yeah, that's that's wild. Can you say what those other factors are? Yeah, so most of it is related to the therapeutic relationship. So there's the therapeutic alliance, which is like a sense of being collaborative and on the same team with your therapist. Um, empathy is huge here, a big predictor of outcome, like the, the client perceiving their therapist as empathetic. Yeah. Uh, similarly, a sense of genuineness, uh, trustworthiness and engagement and expectancy is really important too. What's expectancy there? Yeah. So the client going in and thinking this has a chance of helping me and having like a coherent story about how that might be the case. Right. Okay. So it kind of sounds like, do you like your therapist? Do you get on and trust them? Do they seem genuine and authentic to you? Do you feel like they care about you? Um, And then do you think it could help you? Like, do you think it's going to work? And all this cashes out in, in greater engagement and input and retention, where the client is sort of actively participating in their therapy. 
Okay. Okay. That makes sense. So why is it then that therapists tend to, yeah, focus on particular modalities like you with ACT, others with, I don't know, psychodynamic or whatever? Yeah. Nice. So I'm totally guilty of like acting like ACT is the best or ACT and CBT are the best or something. And despite knowing that modality is not magical, but that is because it's actually useful for my common factors that these things like building therapeutic relationships and engaging clients, it's actually useful if I'm able to convey what I genuinely believe about these modalities being a a useful framework, right? So I can actually credibly claim that ACT is helpful because I use it on myself. And that is better for getting clients, well, a clear sense of like what it's like to be in therapy with me so they can actually know, right? Uh, And also like it can increase expectancy if I'm able to convey like a coherent and compelling story uh, that's like basically a theory of change. That you just really believe in, where you can just authentically be like, this is how this works. I really believe it works. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's almost like like it's useful for the common factors to act as if you believe that the modality mm, is doing a lot of right. things. That <laughs> yeah, that's that's a funny little twist. Maybe just making sure I understand. It sounds like different therapists might find that different um, approaches resonate more with them and maybe have helped them more uh, as as individual people, and so you'll like lean into those because you believe in them uh, and because they like suit you match with the, your, I don't know, thinking style. And it's a description of what you're offering. Right. right. Yes. The, it's what the client can expect to get. Yeah. And so for that reason, different therapists will, will have different approaches and that probably does feed into how well the therapy works, but it's not directly because um, at least as far as we know, uh, a certain approach is like, much more effective than others, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And if this sounds surprising to listeners, we should flag a couple of reasons that it's not quite as wild as it might seem. So for one, the common factors research is only comparing bona fide treatments. So interventions that are designed to be therapeutic and like have a theory of change, right? We're not saying like, you know, it's not like literally any old thing is an equivalent bet or something like that. Okay. And does that even apply to like therapy where the therapy was like, I mean, taking a really extreme example, you could imagine a therapeutic technique where like, if someone expresses a fear, you like throw water at them to like (laughs) surprise them into being averse to expressing that fear or something. If you had like a ridiculous treatment, that might not hold up just because we're calling it therapy. Totally. That probably would not meet the (laughs) definition of bona fide treatment. Although amusingly enough, there have been cases where clinicians tried to design a neutral placebo condition that was was absent uh, therapeutic ingredients. And it actually was effective. Yes. No And it became considered evidence-based. Do you know an example? Yeah. So an example here is present-centered therapy, which was developed as originally as a placebo for PTSD treatment. And the idea was like, and forgive me if I've gotten these details a bit wrong, but it was something like, 
okay, when the client talks about their trauma, just direct their attention back to the present. So we're not doing exposure-based processing. And also when they express trauma-related cognitions, don't try to restructure them or do anything differently. So we're not doing cognitive work. We're not doing exposure. We're just being with the client and bringing their attention back to the present. And these were, these were real therapists, though, so they presumably were offering some of the common factors of empathy and a sense of collaboration, right. and the client ideally felt seen and, uh, you know, like they trusted the therapist. And yeah, it, it delivered good outcomes. So now PCT is evidence-based for PTSD. That is super, super interesting. I, I'd never heard that. Yeah. Was, was there anything else that kind of makes this fact make more sense to you? Yeah. So even on the common factors view, progress still happens via the client making changes. It's not like we're claiming like it doesn't matter what happens as a result of therapy or something like that. And there, it may even be the case that for a given client, there is a particular kind of change right. that needs to happen. Okay. Right. So like if somebody has like a really clear cut experience where avoidance is maintaining their anxiety it's probably true that they need to do something that looks topographically like exposure therapy. But they need not only see an exposure therapist, right? So some people might decide to confront their fears as a matter of self-compassion or because they have like restructured irrational automatic thoughts and like decided that they're not credible or because they've done a values-based approach that didn't deliberately teach exposure, but they realize that they wish to move in that direction. But in each of these worlds, the client goes and enters the situation and change is achieved. It's just not um, all down to how that happens. Right. Okay. So to some extent, some of the modalities are different frameworks uh, with some pretty common underlying suggested changes. Yes. Cool. Okay. Yeah, I agree. That does make it make more sense. Hey, listeners, Louisa here. If you've heard episode 149 of the 80,000 Hours podcast with Tim Laban, you might remember Tim saying CBT is considered the therapeutic approach with the strongest evidence base. There's no paradox here. It's true that CBT has the most research evidence behind it, good theoretical models, and loads of great treatment programs are CBT-based. Uh, but to Hannah's point, specific therapeutic ingredients don't seem like the key factor that predicts treatment outcomes. For someone interested in trying therapy themselves, what can they expect? Uh, what What do you see as as the goal? Yeah, well... I think about the goal as increasing psychological flexibility, right? This this sitting with internal experience and nonetheless choosing your response to the world based on your values. But more generally, I'd say the, the goal of therapy is building skills and insight in the service of personally meaningful change. And the client gets to decide what that is. Yeah. Okay. So the goal is to basically not totally get rid of their symptoms um, or like that might not be the the terminal goal though it like might be nice uh, if they went down but a key goal from your perspective is to like give people the option the freedom to choose to behave differently by using these skills and I guess I'm curious how you feel about cases where um because I know you see a lot of people trying to have kind of as big an impact with their career as they can. And I imagine many of them come to you wanting therapy because they think maybe it's holding them back from having a bigger impact. 
And so they're they're coming to you to be like, help me get rid of these mental health issues so that I can do more good. And to what extent does that feel like, I don't know, a helpful or healthy motivation as opposed to something like, I'd like to come to therapy so that I can be more well because, I don't know, my mental well-being is like valuable. I personally have just like struggled with this. Totally. So the first would be like an instrumental framing and the latter would be like an intrinsic framing. Nice. I do have thoughts here. I think that clients get to decide their reasons for getting therapy. And ultimately that is their purview. And with that said, in my observation, taking an intrinsic approach to valuing mental health tends to work better, both as a matter of subjective well-being and poignantly enough, as a matter of achieving one's ends, than taking a strictly instrumentalized approach to mental health. And that's because an instrumental approach carries some risks, right? So one of the risks is this sense of like chronically just barely okay, right? If you're always allocating mental wellness units to impact or something like that. And it's also an incomplete definition of mental health, in my view, which is like it's only functioning and no subjective experience. And that just doesn't feel like a full description of what it is to be well. Right, right. And so I think that if people endorse an instrumental or purely instrumental reasons for working on mental health, they may nonetheless benefit from behaving as if they intrinsically value their mental health, right? Because this sort of implicates some work that's maybe not directly implicated by the instrumental view, but is actually useful. So things like self-compassion and rest and fun and levity, which are like maybe a little harder to directly justify, but nonetheless create a flourishing being that both feels better and is more effective. Yeah, yeah, okay, that makes sense. So even if you only want to improve your mental health so that you can do more good, at least your experience is that um, thinking about it as if you just want to improve your mental well-being broadly might just yield better outcomes across the board. Yeah, I'm trying to think if like people will have objections to that. I mean, do you do you think there are ever trade-offs there? Oh, absolutely. I mean, certainly. And I think that there's a lot of work worth doing in finding a balanced amount of pure intrinsic well-being that serves your your need for wellness and also can be levered to have higher impact. And if someone came to me and was like, I reject this view and like I want to take a purely instrumental approach, I would say, okay, I think that is risky but let's give it a try. And if that works, amazing. And there's no more to say about it. And then it'd be a question of workability. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. So for anyone hearing this and thinking there are a bunch of skills I want to learn here, um, they might make my life better. They might make me better able to, yeah, try to address some of these pressing problems. What What should someone look for in a therapist? Yeah. Great question. Well, remembering that the common factors in therapy drive a lot of the outcomes, you definitely want to find someone with whom you feel like there's a personal fit and where the approach is cogent and compelling to you. So this is a matter of feeling it out in many cases, right? You want to feel for empathy, genuineness, like an ability to describe mental health in ways that you find compelling, um, 
even though we've said that modality doesn't matter on average, it may matter for you. So if you know something about how you model your mental health, you may want to find a therapist who models it similarly, right? If you have a meditation practice, like maybe a third wave or mindfulness-based therapy will be good for you. You know, if you're looking to make super concrete behavioral changes, maybe a behavior therapist and so forth. An, An interesting thing here is that the therapist's years of experience and training background doesn't matter as much as people think. So don't wow. worry as much. I know that's it's pretty, rough for those of surprising. us who went to grad school. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but if it matters to you, right, if you know as a client, it's like, I want my therapist to have an academic background. Okay, then look for that. But again, this is all down to your own expectancy and engagement. And something for listeners to know is that most therapists offer free consultations where you can just like feel out your chemistry and hear about their approach. And it's like typically like a 15 or 30 minute, you know, call. Uh, and you can do, you can do multiple of these therapist shopping is, is commendable if it's an option available to you. Mm. Um, do therapists sometimes expect for the kind of potential client to be like, that wasn't that helpful to, or like, I don't know, the, the fit wasn't there. And I actually think, uh, I'm, I might try to find someone else because I imagine that to me would be super anxiety inducing as the client to give that feedback. Yeah, exactly. To be like, thanks for the consultation. Uh, I want to keep shopping around. Is that common enough that therapists can handle it? We can definitely handle it for sure. We, and we also want it right because we don't want to like be sort of like forcing someone to do therapy that they don't find resonant. Like that's painful and like ineffective And I think most clients will typically say something that's like, I decided it's not the right time to start therapy or something. But (laughs) however you can, don't start therapy with someone that you don't feel is a good fit. Or if you find later that you're not a good fit with your therapist, give them feedback, see if, if you two can find your way to a better dynamic. And if not, you can switch therapists. And this is preferable on the therapist's view for sure. Right, right. Okay, okay. So the therapist will want that and support you. They will not feel 100%. Okay. Yes. Cool. I feel like that's advice I needed early on. I got really lucky and really, really resonated with the first therapist I tried. But for people who don't have that experience, it's allowed and encouraged to, to keep shopping around. Yeah. Is there any other advice you have on trying to get the most from therapy? Yes. So... In addition to finding an approach that is a good fit for you, you definitely want to set goals and track progress in some way so that you have a sense of like where you're going and whether you're getting there. And you can do this formally with with outcome monitoring. So your therapist may give you questionnaires to fill out routinely. You can also do it informally where you just name goals qualitatively and then ask, how are we doing on these things? And if you're ever like sitting in therapy and you're like, I'm not sure what we're trying to accomplish here, you definitely want to bring that up because there's like no reason that should ever be the case that you feel confused about, like what's the point of, of what you're doing. And then I guess more pragmatically things that I find helpful uh, would be setting an agenda at the top of every session, um, taking notes, but sparingly. So just to remember like important themes or certainly action items, um, but not so much that it takes you out of the discussion with your therapist, assigning homework uh, or between session commitments uh, where you can try out whatever is being discussed, right? Because 
you know, 99% of your life is outside of therapy. And we do know that skills need to be practiced in the relevant context in order to root. I remember being super surprised when I started getting homework for therapy. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, wait, I thought I was just going to talk to you and you were going to solve my problems as yeah. we chatted. Yeah, nice. Um, I've personally found that um, I love therapy homework. I know that's probably not the case for everyone, but I was surprised, pleasantly surprised uh, to realize that it was just like, often really interesting exercises and I got to learn about myself and um, look forward to my therapy homework. Oh, nice. That's which awesome. Which I, yeah, didn't expect, but good to know that it's also helping me. Yeah. And I think that's the other thing I would say was to give your therapist feedback. You may be your therapist's main source of helpful feedback loops. And to the extent that you have useful you know, constructive criticism uh, or or positive feedback for them, they would appreciate it probably more than you realize to hear that. Because I guess what kinds of feedback loops do therapists even get? Well, we get client feedback and we can get outcome tracking, but outcome monitoring is, it does not feel actually super tight because there are a ton of contextual factors, obviously, in a client's life. So it's sort of hard to tell a like really tight story about like how effective am I as a therapist just by looking at a bunch of graphs. So sorry. And that's graphs of like, you get people to report on their symptoms and track them over time or... Yeah, sorry. To be clear here. Yeah. When I say outcome monitoring, I mean, yes, exactly that. The client like fills out surveys or questionnaires that are either, it could be symptom measures or it could be like measures of cognitive flexibility. Like how much am I buying into my thoughts or something like that? And then you could look at those graphs over time. But also that's hard because like maybe you lost your job right. in the middle of that. And so you actually got more depressed, but it's really hard to tell what the story of the therapist value add was there. Yeah. Okay. And the, and therapists are, aren't immune to motivated reasoning where we tell stories about how, oh, I did the best I could and it was, it was, the, it was good, but... And client feedback is like the one thing that can kick us out of that if you can like directly let us know what's been helpful and unhelpful. Right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I hadn't I hadn't thought about that before. I guess it's just like the client, the therapist in the sessions, and really that's that's probably most of what you'll well, get. Well, some therapists have supervisors, even if they're independently licensed, but I think it's more common for that not to be the case. Almost everyone I know, myself included, does a lot of peer consultation and peer supervision. So oh, that's cool. like another source of feedback looping. But it requires the therapist to know what they are struggling with and need need input on. Right. Okay. So you might go to your peers and be like, I've got this person with really bad imposter syndrome. She runs this podcast and she's a mess <laughs> and I don't know how to help her. Um, would I ever say they're a mess? Never. I would say, wow, this person is mightily suffering and quite stuck. <laughs> that does that does seem more helpful. But if you knew that you really struggled to help people with imposter syndrome, you you have peers and you can be like, give me some advice. What what should I do with that? Yeah. Yeah, I have multiple. I have like an ACT one and an EA one and a regular one. So it's it's actually wonderful to have like a lot of contact with peers, especially when you're in private practice. I didn't realize that was a thing. Super cool. Okay, so a thing in particular that you uh, are excited about in your therapy practice is this idea of taking a transdiagnostic approach to therapy. Can you can you explain what that means? Totally. So formally, the mental health system 
operates on a categorical medical model for classification and treatment, right? So diagnosis and treatment. So categorical being like you're either in a category or you're not. Um, so you're either depressed or you're not, or you're, I don't know, what are the other ones? Yeah, we have this huge book called the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, that's like literally just hundreds of, of lists of symptoms. And it's like, okay, they say they're anxious. Well, do they have difficult to control worry about more than one domain? Has it lasted for six months? Do they have at least three of these other? Okay, they have generalized anxiety disorder. And There are tons of advantages of a categorical approach. It's good for communication between therapists and clients and among clinicians. Some clients find it useful, like, like, hey, there's, there's a, there's a name for what this is and other people have it too. It is necessary for insurance reimbursement in most cases. So even if your difficulties don't fall into a clear category, your therapist still has to assign something. And with all that said, it, is not a description of the territory. So it's not the case that mental health actually comes in really clean, separable categories. The actual truth is that people have lots of symptoms that can cut across different categories. Maybe they have a presentation that doesn't fit cleanly into a category, oftentimes meet criteria for more than one thing at once. And it's a little misleading to say someone who is, let's say, temperamentally super anxious and avoidant has like six different anxiety disorders, if it's actually the case that they're under the influence of of a general process. And that's where the transdiagnostic approach comes in, which is looking for and then intervening on the shared underlying processes that put a person at risk for, and then maintain a variety of different mental okay, health Okay, okay. So yeah, to make that more concrete, um, what's an example of one of those underlying processes? Yeah, so having an aversive reaction to emotions, this is a factor that can vary across people. And the more you relate to emotions as sort of like scary and unacceptable and dangerous and intolerable, the greater your risk for developing an emotional disorder. Got it. Likewise, with avoidant coping, if you're like extremely prone to managing emotions with some kind of avoidance or suppression or control behavior, cognitive fusion could be another one. So like, do you habitually treat your thoughts as as facts and immediately buy into them and, and obey them and whatnot? And these these can be treated with transdiagnostic skills, right? So like emotion acceptance is, is of course, not only applicable to one diagnosis or another. Right. Okay. Okay, cool. Yeah, I like that because, I mean, partly because I currently am like subclinical for depression and anxiety for the first time in many mm-hmm. years, but I just like really still want to go to therapy and keep developing skills to be less avoidant. Uh, get better at tolerating distress when I do feel it. And that's one maybe of many reasons that you might that people might find it helpful to treat processes rather than exactly. Yeah, the line between mental well being and mental ill being kind of dissolves on this view, because we can just say what what is going on? And, And oh, by golly, it's a version of something we all have to some degree. If it's causing problems, let's work on it. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Okay. Cool. Well, that that does seem like really valuable. Is it is it increasingly common for therapists to think about it this way? Yes, I actually think it's quite common now. It used to be radical 15 or 20 years ago, but it, it's how most therapists practice, at least implicitly, even if they don't explicitly say that. Right. Cool. Okay. Well, yeah, that, that just seems good. It's a shame that insurance companies aren't catching up yet, but 
I know it. <laughs> okay, so many of our listeners are pretty sympathetic to um, yeah, to moral theories that say we ought to be trying to do basically as much good as we can with you know the resource we have, so our money and our time. And those views kind of taken to their logical extreme end up being quite morally demanding. If you could be doing more good by donating more money, uh, it's like hard to know when you can give yourself permission to stop. Yeah. And like where that line is. And to be clear, moral demandingness isn't itself a mental health issue, but it's this like descriptive thing that happens with certain moral philosophies that in my experience, and I think in other people's experience, can take a toll on mental health if you um, basically always worried that you could be doing more, maybe you should be doing more, and that there's kind of no end to it. And yeah, I guess in my case, maybe making a bit more concrete, I struggle a fair bit with guilt and shame about definitely not donating more and then also not working more where like one of my biggest resources is my time. And yeah, I feel, I feel guilty that I don't work harder. And then a very acute decision that has been a source of anxiety for me uh, for years is the decision of whether to have children. I just like really, really want to have kids. (laughs) I have forever and I still feel really strongly about it I actually probably feel more and more strongly about it I just turned 29 and I'm thank you (laughs) um and I'm just like so so excited about the idea but on the other hand like kids are really expensive they take loads of time like I probably will work less and it just seems totally plausible that like I'll do maybe significantly less good if I choose to have kids. And then another twist is like, I feel like there's even mixed evidence about like the impact on your life of having kids. So I'm like, do I just want to have kids because of this weird biological thing? But actually, like, it's just going to be really hard and stressful and like not make my life better. And then I'll have all this guilt about not having a bigger, bigger impact for no reason. So anyways, that's that's pretty long winded. But I I guess I wonder if if this is a thing, uh, maybe not the specific thing, but if this is a thing that comes up when when you're working with people on their mental health. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And it it has this sort of shape of like it. So it sounds like a values question. Right. But the the natural prompt of like, okay, so uh, what do you care about most? Just drive in that direction sort of thing doesn't well, doesn't get us to a satisfactory place in cases where there are competing values or potentially competing values that all feel like super, super important and meaningful, right? So exactly, I think there's a couple of tools, though, that can help here as an alternative to just like repeatedly demanding from ourselves that we choose the thing that matters most, or that we figure out what that thing is and then do it. There's a few other approaches we can take. So you're you're pointing at something that an act is called workability, which is this sort of pragmatic criterion for choosing actions. Mm-hmm. And it's basically saying, well, does it work? Meaning, if I use this strategy, will it get me the consequences I'm seeking without too many costs? Is it sustainable as an overall policy? Right. It's kind of like a reality check. And it's it's meant as a counterweight to this exact 
dogmatism that we're trying to not fall into, right? In a values-based framework, whether that's like doing the most good morality stuff or act as an intervention, we don't want to sort of have a blindered dogmatism in the way that we follow our values. And instead, we want to be able to be loose and hold things lightly and be heavily contextualized, right? Mm -hmm. And to sidestep out of a kind of like rigid dogmatic approach to values, you can ask, instead of asking like, um, what ought I to do here as a matter of values, you can ask just on a pragmatic level, like, what kind of consequences do I anticipate getting if I choose each of these things? You know, well, if you worked more, what do you think would happen? Right. And just just like describe those worlds. Similarly, if I if I just decided not to have kids and just called it a day, how would that turn out for me? Mm -hmm. Do you have any insights on that? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's it's weird. It like hit me pretty hard. I feel a pretty immediate sense of grief and loss and and some like preliminary resentment, resentment that I think it's like toward the value of trying to do the most good and have some sense of like liking that value less now because it's causing me too much. It's imposing too many costs on me. And I'm just like, you're too much. You're yeah. too demanding. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So, so this is a place, right, where it sounds like choosing in an absolute sense to put like all of your energy behind one value runs the risk of leaving you feeling kind of alienated. Um, Alienated is exactly the word. Yeah. From the value. Yeah. Yeah. Spot on. We can even step back from dogmatism about therapy skills. So even if we generally recognize that avoiding emotions can be problematic or generally recognize that certain behaviors don't work, there's a level at which we can say, is some amount of emotion avoidance compatible with a rich and full life? Definitely. So actually, this this makes me think of something else that's maybe worth mentioning here, which is the idea of embracing multiplicity. So okay, what? Yeah, what does that mean? Yeah, so I'm not a I'm not a therapist who specializes in multiplicity, and some therapists do. Um, so I don't speak from like some sort of formal expertise. But as a CBT therapist, I find that embracing multiplicity oftentimes is an assist to some CBT and ACT skills. So the idea here is like, we can acknowledge that we do in fact care about more than one thing. Right. And it does seem like we're sort of in trying to steward ourselves, steward like quite a lot of different parts of ourselves. Right. And by instead of sort of demanding that that not be true by trying to impose, you know, a unitary moral theory, we could instead say, well, it looks, it looks like it is true, right? It does seem to be that I care about more than one thing. And then sort of directly engage with those aspects of yourself, usually in the form of like a dialogue between parts or something of that nature, um, can be a way of feeling less alienated and more integrated, even right. when you care about more than one thing. Yes, right. And this feels like uh, it's relating to this thing that I felt like was amazingly depicted in Inside Out, the film. Yes. Mm -hmm. Which was, yeah, I guess my first introduction to the theory that we've got parts of us that have different wants and different goals. And um, it doesn't 
really work to just ignore some of them, mm-hmm. which I think is what I wanted to be the case for a long time. I like wanted it to be the case that I could just ignore the part of me that wanted kids and kind of advocate for the part of me that wanted to just do the most good um, that I possibly could. And it doesn't seem like my brain is just going to let, uh, let me ignore one part of myself, um, especially that feels as strongly as this kid's one does indefinitely and have that never come up and be angry and start demanding uh, I listen to it. Yeah, right. So in in recognizing that and recognizing that it's sort of not workable to, um, you know, tell a part of you to be quiet forever, mm-hmm. right? You can even train in sort of the opposite of that. and And this motion of like, deliberately calling on parts of yourself to speak up, right? So like, just, you know, informally, we could say like, okay, Louisa, like, what what does the part of you that wants kids have to say about all of this, right? Do you want to try a bit of perspective taking here? Let's do it. Nice. So, well, actually, let's start with the other part. Let's, um, let's hear from the part that's like, you know, we shouldn't want kids, um, or maybe we do, but we ought to not have them nonetheless, because that'll reduce impact. What does that part tend to think when you're pondering this question? Yeah, um, that part is like the sticks here are huge. Like you're one person and you want one person's worth of happiness through having kids. But I want to help make thousands or millions of people happier than they might be otherwise um, by working on these pressing problems with everything we've got. And I get it. You're sad that you might not have kids. But like, that's just not, yeah, that's just not a strong enough reason. The like, overall calculus is just like not in your favor here. Mm -hmm. And we can't justify it. Yeah. Do you notice any other reactions showing up as you articulate that voice? Yeah, it's like the part of me that wants things that wants happiness for myself is like, really, really sad if we like never get to do anything for ourselves. Mm -hmm. Definitely there's like a fear part that like here's the way this like impact minded part is thinking about things. And it's like that line of thinking never ends. Like what's your plan here? There will always be millions of people who like could benefit from you doing another few hours of work. I mean, that version is probably a bit strong, but well, but it's saying, it's saying, hey, hold up, that's not workable, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what it's doing. Nice. Yeah, I mean, one one move to make here is to ask something like, do you, do you have any values that bear on, like, how you would like to sort of, like, mediate among your parts, right? Like, values around, or maybe meta values around self-stewardship. Like, how, like, when you do meet a conflict like this, what's the attitudinal stance you wish to take? Any thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, it's funny, like, there's definitely a part of me that wants to be able to subjugate some of my parts entirely, like, that's really demonized them like this. I don't know, you could call it the selfish part. Probably I could probably think of a more charitable name Mm -hmm. for it. I don't know exactly what it'd be. It's probably most akin to joy in Inside Out, who like, wants me to be happy. Definitely, part of me wants to be like, let's get rid of her. She is not, she's not helping us live out the values that we care most about. I don't know. Can I get in touch with another part that's like, 
more interested in having the parts kind of be more collaborative. Yeah, I think maybe there's another part that's like realistic and yeah, interested in being realistic and maybe really, really internalizes this workability concept um, and is basically like, we've learned that we can't totally banish that like selfish, joyful part. Um, So we're going to need to figure out how to work all together to make realistic decisions given these competing needs. And I imagine that like working all together means you have to basically be able to like credibly, credibly claim to Joy that like you hear, hear and respect her and like are actually going to take care of her. Right. Right. (laughs) And I don't know that I currently can. Currently, I think I'm like, I tolerate you, Joy, Mm -hmm. and I will give you just enough to like appease you begrudgingly. Yeah. If you could get in touch with like how you hope your relationship to this part might end up or evolve, Mm -hmm. any sense of that, like even if even if the moral demanding this part protests here, right? Like how would you like to be talking to Joy if you evolved on this score? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, probably with a lot of gratitude and appreciation. Just like, thank you so much for trying to help me live a joyful and meaningful life on this kind of individual level. I do love feeling happy. Yeah, nice. (laughs) And you are all about that. That's really nice. Yeah. Well, so clearly we've conclusively decided whether or not you'll have kids. Um, So I hope that was helpful. (laughs) Yeah, thanks. Yeah, no, that's totally resolved. What would it look like to conclusively resolve? Yeah, I think some part of me knows that like I'm going to and would love to find more peace with that. Mm -hmm. Maybe it is actually engaging more with the... um, moral demanding this part mm-hmm. and being like I still really care about what you care about we are still going to do our best or do a lot to do a lot of good and also you need to be a bit more realistic because we apparently can't live a joyless life yeah nice I mean I, I think that this like this really articulates the spirit of choosing under conditions of uncertainty or uh, doubt or inner conflict, right? Is that like, we actually don't aim for a complete absence of like doubt or like wishing, you know, resistance or wishing it could be otherwise. But what we do aim for is willingness to nonetheless make a choice under these conditions. And it sounds like it might be available for you to get to that level of willingness, even if no single one of your parts is 100% satisfied. Totally. Yes. Yeah, that makes sense. And I actually have totally had um, moral demandingness issues where I felt like I just couldn't decide. And yeah, it does seem realistically, maybe the best you can do is like, get to a place where you can take action. Are there? Yeah, are there other examples of this that you've seen people struggle with? Yeah, totally. So one would be veganism or variations on plant-based diets, right? Where Mm -hmm. there are a lot of our listeners in the high-impact space that feel super strongly about reducing the suffering of farmed animals, right? So the directional, you know, 
ought is, well, just don't eat any animal products at all. And that trades off against things like convenience. And here, I, I, I don't mean that in a fluffy sense, I mean time and attention, as well as health for some people or energy and sort of physical well-being. And I think that this is a place where workability is essential, right? Like because of like how we get our food, it's sort of unworkable to like always know exactly the origin of like every constituent ingredient in a plant-based food or something like that. Right. So at some point, if you don't want to just like stay in the grocery store Googling where the sugar came from, like you have to round off to good enough. And that can feel, I think like pretty, pretty like ethically, like, painful for people who like take seriously, you know, the suffering. And nonetheless, it seems it seems to be the only choice. Right. Yeah, right. Uh, And then and then what do you what do you recommend for those people, especially when there is no choice? It's just like accepting, I guess, that you will cause suffering. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, ouch. Like even, even as you just said that I had like a, no, I don't want that sort of reaction. Show exactly. up. Like, that yeah. can't be, that can't be the best place to land. And I think we have to acknowledge that we are under conditions where in fact, there is not a fully satisfactory choice available, right? Yeah. We're in a universe where trade-offs exist. We have finite resources. We have multiple things we care about and we have incomplete information, Right. So we have to make guesses and take risks. And that, I mean, that hurts. Right. So I think self compassion and sort of acceptance come in here like, damn, I so am wishing this were not the case. And by golly, it looks like it still is. Right. And yeah. And then I think that it's a matter of like recognizing that we aren't going to score 100% on sort of any unitary <laughs> definition of rightness. And then recognize that like, well, I could, I could just look at that and stall out forever, or I could make some moves and probably making moves is preferable to stalling out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, that, that totally sounds right. Yeah. Are there, are there any other common examples? I think there's kind of like a shape of a thing here. Uh, This is a belief actually that I struggle with. That's like, if there is capacity left on the table, there has been a moral error. Oh, man. Yeah, (laughs) that hits, right? I mean, it's really quite a defensible position, right? The logic is like, well, I do, in fact, wish to use resources for a purpose. Look, some unused ones. We should allocate them. Yes. So like, uh, concretely, I very much have this with like, if it's the end of a work day and I have any more energy and I'm not totally spent, mm-hmm. like I could obviously do a bit more work yeah, or just money. Like if I have any savings, that feels wrong. Yeah. And, yeah. and then, and then what, like, what do we do? Well, I think we have to get clear on like two things that are true here alongside the like very appealing philosophy proof. <laughs> One is that, like following that rule positions you to be in a constant state of just barely okay, right? Like every time you get a unit of of mental health from the wellness factory and you're like immediately distribute to impact, right? Then you're, you're like basically almost empty or a little bit like in the red all of the time. Right. And and that's just like very, very risky and costly. Um, It's obviously, it's painful, right? But it's also going to 
put you at risk for for burnout and for like needing to take longer breaks to basically like recover and care for yourself. And it's also like, it's in my view, it's sort of like needlessly painful as a matter of subjective well-being to be in a, a constant insufficiency state. So like every time you have a sense of ease, if you're rehearsing, there's been a moral error. It's like, this is a, just a terrible way to live as a matter of like your own internal experience. So totally. Yeah, this is a hard one, though. Like I it feels so compelling. And I think that like the thing I remind myself of is like that feeling of compellingness is simply like an incomplete description of what's true. It does feel really compelling to use 100% of my capacity. And I do like, really feel that urge to allocate capacity whenever it shows up. But if and when I ever do this, which I do occasionally try versions of it, I end up feeling the effects and it is not preferable, right? So it's almost like I have to tell myself, you're not well calibrated on this. You think that you want zero slack and ease. You want an amount, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Greater than zero. Yeah, I mean... Well, I'm kind of interested. Are you are you up for saying more about both cases where you found yourself trying to uh, use 100% and then also how you know when you're striking the wrong balance? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Nice, nice. So cases where I try to use 100%, this could be like setting my schedule, right? So I'm in solo practice. So I decide like what hours I work and how many clients I see and how well I manage my time in session, (laughs) and whether I give myself breaks between sessions. And my clients will know, I am not perfect at this, surprisingly. So a question could be like, I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) A question could be like, well, there, there seem to be like a lot of effective altruists and people in the high impact space who are like very interested in a therapist who's aligned with their values. And like, I'm one of the few therapists who is, right? And I mean, this is like the shape that it takes in other careers too, right? Where you're like, no, really, I have like this sort of niche thing I can contribute. I, I really ought to be doing it. But what I recognize is that at times when I've packed my schedule sort of like as full as the numbers allow, I end up being, I think, a less thoughtful therapist I think there is a risk of of resenting the work, which I very much do not want to do. I actually genuinely love therapy and being a therapist, oh, and I think lovely. I yeah, it's 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 honestly it's it's the best. And it might be not the best if I was in a constant state of like, oh my goodness, I'm asking more of my brain that it really can't give. Totally. Um, so yeah, I mean, what's the cost here? The cost is that I look at my calendar and my mind. Part of my mind is like, you could do more. And it kind of looks like you kind of want to just have fun and chill, right? And I have to unhook from that thought and just be like, I see you. I see what you're pointing at. You're naming something that matters. And by the way, workability is also here. Yes, right. Yeah, so it's an ongoing balance. Right, okay. I mean, that's, yeah, it's a wonderful example. And it's also just very helpful to me because I'm like, obviously, you shouldn't like, get as close to the line of too many clients or whatever it is, uh, such that like, you're constantly barely, I mean, I, yeah, I think the image I have is like, kind of drowning, but like keeping your, like splashing around, keeping yourself just above water. That's obviously not sustainable. So obvious. And like, it's really obvious when you say it. (laughs) Yeah. It's just in my case Mm -hmm. that, um, that I need to be at a hundred percent. 
So yeah, your your other question too, right? On like, how do you know? This is this is kind of a skill, right? And I I think about it as a matter of like, you have to know your own check engine lights, right? Like, oh, interesting. When is the system like signaling we're gonna be on empty soon, right? So emotional lability is one, like emotional uh, ups and downs and fluctuations, like tend to be like more frequent and like um, a bigger amplitude when, at least in my case, and I think in a lot of people's cases, when they're depleted. So look for, right, like the cases where like, if you see a a sweet commercial, you start crying and then you're just like, oh, yikes. Okay. You know? Um, And then I think like a sense of like physical rundownness, like getting more tired than usual or feeling like kind of achy and unwell, you know, can sometimes be worsened by depletion. And then also anhedonia. Can you define anhedonia? Anhedonia is when you aren't getting as much pleasure or interest or reward out of something that you otherwise expect would be bringing you reward. Okay, right. So it's, it's a symptom of depression, but it can also just happen to any of us um, at any time. And one of the conditions when when it's likely to show up is if you are burning out or in an otherwise sort of like painful, aversive relationship with something in your life. So like if I were to start not enjoying therapy, that would be like a very bad sign well, it'd be, it would be bad for my clients and it would be an indicator that I might need a new relationship with therapy. Yeah, that's actually, I mean, that's just really helpful. I think I, it's really easy for me to be dismissive of parts of me that are like, this is too much. My response is basically like, you just want to watch, I don't know, more TV or like, <laughs> you're just late, like you're lazy. You don't want to work that hard. That's not a good reason to work less. But having just like really concrete things to look out for. I once read a a, a blog post, I think it was on uh, laziness. And the take was that laziness doesn't exist. And the thing that we label as laziness actually reflects the system trying to meet a particular need. No one actually, the, the claim is like, nobody actually has a value. And maybe this is wrong, but like, of like, just in an absolute sense, like, get less of everything or something right, like that. Right, right, right. So, and, and I do think there's a real value in asking, like, what is this thing that I'm calling laziness, like, trying to compel me to do? And is this a need that I might want to take seriously? And like, is it a need for rest? Yeah, is it a need for, yeah. for the, for this, thing called social socializing that like we kind of dismiss as like frivolous but Mm -hmm. like actually we've spent hundreds of thousands of years being programmed to want Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. laziness does not exist interesting I do just kind of buy it like at least in my case like I want to do things yep I I want to like do good I want to do my job I want to want to do my job I like want to also sometimes, I don't know, have leisure to hobbies that I like. Yeah. Um, or maybe you, you may in fact not, not always want that, but you may need it, right? Like you, because you happen to be this embodied organism that, right. you know, requires rest. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That, that makes sense. I feel like it's probably the case that there are like a bunch of examples in other contexts where systems need slack like businesses that run and have budgets that like where they have to build in 10% budget wiggle room so that they don't overspend or something. And I wonder if having those models um, or those examples closer to hand would help me be like, 
This is like an established pattern in the world where like no one thinks that businesses can run at 100% capacity and like never have issues. They like all choose to do this thing called Slack and maybe we should just trust including like for profits who want to maximize profit that they are like doing what's best for the for the company or for the for the aim. Nice. Yeah, I think that is so that is so true. I mean, it has a sort of a similar function to like looking at uh, like the example of in a friend's life or somebody else's job yeah, to make it more right. vivid, right? Um, and it, it highlights that you can sort of reconcile uh, a sort of like a unitary aim, like moral demanding that or like a highly demanding moral theory with constraints, right? Like moral theories like sort of don't seem to look at constraints that much. And then it, all the application is where everything gets painful and complicated. But th- this example is like exactly how they can fit together is like you can you can price in constraints and do a constrained yet better than nothing attempt. Yes, right, right, right. Cool. Okay, well, that I mean, that I find helpful. I don't know if others will, but may- maybe. Do you have any thoughts on healthy or or maybe the better term is workable ways to think about um, moral demandingness for, for people who do pull it up, put a lot of weight on these moral views, but then struggle, like you said, with the application? Yeah, I think it, I think it is like recognizing what a demanding moral theory like can and can't offer you as a matter of you I mean you have more than one job in some sense like as the steward of your system or like the the agent that's like directing your body and whatnot and like the moral theory is like a directional pointer toward like one way that you might want to navigate and as we've just gotten done saying like you're embodied you're contextualized you're constrained and I think that the the mistake we don't want to make is like thinking that once we have a good moral theory, there's like sort of nothing else to see here. And it's just a matter of sort of like rigidly barreling in that direction. It's yeah, I mean, it's recognizing the kind of system that you are, the kind of territory you're in and like letting that be a, a, a starting uh, set of assumptions r- rather than like spending a lot of time imagining or wishing that you were in a different world or a different kind of being. Yeah, yeah, that sounds wise. Yeah, it does feel like I had the experience of learning about a moral theory that like resonated so much. I was like, this, this feels like how I want to live my life. But it was super tidy and clean and simple and said nothing about, I mean, very little about real life. (laughs) It was just a very mathematical, doing lots of good is good. That's the, the core of it for me, I guess. And then and then there's this frustrating thing that um, reality just makes it way more complicated. And I guess people have to grapple and maybe grieve that a bit. Yeah, nice. Yeah, I'd actually love to talk more about self-compassion. Yeah, I have to admit, I for a long time have had, I just really bounced off the idea of self-compassion mm. and off of compassion-focused therapy, which came up a number of times. And I kept being like, no, I don't want to do that my reaction to the idea of being more compassionate toward myself was like, oh, that sounds like lowering my standards or that sounds like letting myself off the hook or that sounds like, I don't know, some kind of like over-the-top self-care that I don't identify with. I mean, a little bit of like, that sounds weak. Mm -hmm. I want to be strong. Yeah, Um, that that sounds like things I've, I've heard 
inside my head and from clients before. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So it's not just me. Yeah. To some extent, I've made some progress on this. I don't have those associations quite as strongly, but yeah, for listeners who do still have some of that, can you, can you help us have a different framing? Absolutely. The thing we're aiming for is not anything goes or my standards don't matter. The thing we're aiming for is no matter where I've set the standard, how can I show up for treating myself well and kindly and effectively along the way? And let's also be clear that self-compassion is actually useful, right? So, well, first of all, it's justified. We've said this already. We are the sorts of creatures that suffer and we suffer for reasons out of our control uh, that we didn't choose in my view, that that justifies compassion. But even separately from that, self-compassion works better than self-loathing and self-berating. So when you're in a constant state of self-criticism, this is kicking up additional suffering that you then have to metabolize. Right. Whereas when you can relate as a matter of self-compassion, this actually enhances performance more than self-criticism does. Hmm. And it makes for a better subjective experience. Right, better experience. Yeah, okay. That sounds totally right. Cool. Well, yeah, then I guess I guess we've got to go all in on self-compassion. Yeah, yeah. And something more like you are doing something super important, super brave, super valuable. Yes. Thank yes. you for doing it. Yes. And, and you, are, you are materially creating a world where a lot of people are pushing toward impact. And that is worth being That's a part wonderful. of. wonderful. Yeah, 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 yeah. And comes with pain, probably for most people involved, mm-hmm. probably for everyone involved. And that is hard. But thank you for doing hard things. Yes. Cool. Well, I guess it'll be helpful for people to, um, to practice that kind of self-talk themselves. But on behalf of 80,000 hours, <laughs> for anyone struggling with this, yeah, thank you. It's can be really painful. Thank you for trying. Okay. Yeah. Turning to another topic, another common issue among people trying to do as much good as they can in their careers is, um, yeah, it's perfectionism. So in, in work or in academics, um, have you, have you found this to be common in your practice? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, is that like a yes, definitely? That's a yes, definitely. And I think it it makes a lot of sense in light of what we were just saying, right, of how natural it is to be drawn to, you know, compelling reasons around wanting to seek excellence and wanting to, well, yeah, wanting to do good. And, well, I think that this can, this is an example of like, an amount of this is adaptive, and another amount is maladaptive. <laughs> and right. perfection, the thing we call perfectionism is like when you lose track of like the threshold at which it becomes no longer helpful, or you're sort of over applying the helpful thing in places where it's not a good fit. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. And I guess, I mean, I've had the experience, and I think maybe others have the experience of really, really believing that your perfectionism is helping you and that to let go of it would be really bad. And yeah, I guess, do you mind saying more about how to know when this, the kind of perfectionist tendencies go from helpful to unhelpful? Yeah. Yeah. So I think 
one one indicator would be it's causing you pain subjectively. Like if you find yourself in a constant state of judging your work or like rehearsing basically some not enoughness narrative that and that's hurting you. And then the other big reason would be if, if it's costing you in ways that are greater than the benefit of, of the marginal perfecting. So the sorts of costs I'm thinking of are around like time and opportunity costs and also particularly losing clarity on what does and doesn't need to be perfected, right? So like an analogy here is like frugality, right? If you find yourself overspending like on a lot of things and you're like, oh, I need to make a change, the corrective is not like buy nothing going forward. It's about conserving your resources so that you can use money to purchase more value and not use it when it doesn't purchase more value. And I think perfectionism uh, or optimizing or or things in this neighborhood are the same, where we want to retain the option of judiciously applying the marginal rigor and precision and all the rest when it is actually going to buy us more value. And we have to discern when that isn't isn't the case, because otherwise we'll run out of, of resources. Yes. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So the key thing here is like, don't stop trying to sometimes do things to really high standards, yep. mm-hmm. um, but be deliberate. I, uh, discerning is the word you used. And I think that's right uh, in figuring out which things to apply those high standards to. This is something I've struggled loads with. Um, I do struggle less with it now. Definitely still struggle with it. How much improvement can people kind of hope to get in this area uh, if they were to work on it either with a therapist or, I don't know, something else? I think, yeah, I don't have a quantified sense here, but I think the answer is like is like noticeable. It seems reasonable, right? Like I, I definitely have clients who would who would endorse like, I used to be super perfectionistic and now I'm less so. And it, and that's via like essentially recognizing the thing we just said is that like it's not workable to be uncritically perfectionistic and everything. And the, the move is to become more discerning. To be clear, like that that can hurt, right? Like it, it actually has this cost of it of discomfort and like feel feeling like you have to stop short of excellent in some cases. But I think the the recognition is that like that discomfort is actually like worth sitting with for the purpose of having a more workable approach. I also think there are some cultural norms that are common in high impact spaces that can amplify imposter syndrome a bit. Oh, really? So the sorts of questions that people are well-practiced asking about their projects, things like, where are the top problems? Which of these is neglected? How could we be doing better? If we're doing things that aren't a value add, we need to stop doing them, right? These sorts of questions that are useful for impact can easily start being applied to the self where they pull for a deficit frame, right? And then there's also this sort of cultural norm or virtue around uh, self-critique and humility, right? Yeah, so, right. If you are, let's say, like complimented for your work, somebody in a high impact space is probably going to be ready with an internal yeah, but, right? Because that's that's a move that's really well practiced in these spaces. Right. Totally. Okay. Yeah. So just to dig in a bit more on a few of those things, the bit about the types of questions that you're asking, um, which for some people is 
for some people, they're trying to do a lot of good. Some people, they're trying to do the most good they can. And in either case, um, maybe much more than is typical, we, we end up asking things like, is what we're doing good enough? Could we be doing more good? Do we have the right beliefs or could we have the writer beliefs? Yes. Is this project that I'm working on going fine? How can I guess all the ways it could go wrong so that mm-hmm. it could go better? And I guess it's such a optimization framing that ending up anywhere below optimal, which we don't even know what optimal is oftentimes. So it's often pretty easy to tell a story where we are below optimal, then we're setting ourselves up to feel inadequate, I guess. And I think I both stand by the goal of trying to find ways to do better and to do more good. But how do you do that in a way that doesn't also end up making you feel kind of chronically inadequate because like you could always have done the project better or you could always be kind of reflecting more on your beliefs to make sure that you you've got the right ideas about what the most pressing problems are or something I have a few thoughts on this I think we are aiming for a place where we can decouple the scorecard from our worthiness right so It's, of course, the case that in trying to optimize the good, we will always be falling short, right? The question is, how much and in what ways are we not there yet? And if we if we then extrapolate that to how much and in what ways am I not enough, that's where we run into trouble. And I think that we miss the fundamental difference between performance and worthiness and that we want to keep that difference vivid. So what specifically does the work helps people um, go from that like extreme perfectionism to a bit more discerning? Yeah. So there's a couple of things that can help here. One is exposure therapy. <laughs> so oh, love exposure love therapy. It. <laughs> do, yeah. Do you mind describing it? Exposure therapy is this classic, wonderful gift from traditional CBT uh, that was originally developed for the treatment of phobic and fear-based conditions, right? So like panic disorder, social anxiety, OCD, and so forth, where the idea is that some of these conditions, these anxiety and fear conditions are maintained by avoidance of the thing, right? So like if you have a fear of flying, you definitely won't overcome it by never flying. And on an exposure model, the idea is that if you deliberately and repeatedly get in touch with the fearful thing, you can learn that it's survivable or tolerable. You can learn that your anxiety in that moment is, is itself survival and tolerable. And with time, this creates new learning, new like non-fear or safety learning that inhibits the old fear associations. Right, right. Okay, so you're basically like... You have new experiences that are a bit better than you thought they might be, maybe much better than you thought they might be. And then your brain slowly learns to be like, actually, this thing doesn't literally kill us. Uh, It might be scary still, but um, it's like better than we thought. We can probably do more of it. Yeah. I mean, this is face your fears just formalized, right? So like <laughs> okay. with a so if you had a spider phobia, it'd be like, look at pictures of spiders. Like then look at a spider in a, you know, in a cage. Then like touch it. <laughs> then let it crawl on you, right? And uh yeah. And the the cool thing about exposure is that 
it actually can work for other types of internal discomfort that aren't sort of a straightforward phobia. And that's why that's why it's relevant to perfectionism, right? Okay, so, yeah, yeah. How, how does it work? Well, remember how I said in, the, in acceptance and commitment therapy, what we're going for is like an ability to coexist with internal experience and then like act flexibly under those conditions, right? So the way that it, the exposure model like intersects with that is like, Okay, if you can spend time in contact with a with a situation that creates internal discomfort and practice feeling that discomfort, whatever that might be, whether that's like doubt or, you know, a pull for perfectionism or whatever, and then acting flexibly, in other words, not letting that discomfort pull you into, you know, a, a basically avoidance moves, then you can learn essentially emotional self-efficacy, right? Right. Like, just like the spider phobia person, like, learned that spiders are tolerable, the perfectionist can learn that enoughness is tolerable, right? Right. Okay. Yeah. Can you, can you give an example? Totally. Yeah. I mean, and also we can, we can use me because I've still got loads. Of well, yeah. Then why don't, on. why don't you give an example of a time where you find yourself overusing perfectionism? That's not working for you. Yes. So, oh, so many things. Um, for me, perfectionism has always related to my imposter syndrome, where the idea is like, I'm a fraud and I don't want anyone to find out. And the best way for me to keep that hidden is by only letting people see my absolute best work. And maybe I'll downplay um, how much time I spent on something so they don't know that I literally thought about everything I could before um, sharing it with them. So um, yeah, I mean, there are a bunch of recent examples, but one was recently I like needed to share a doc with a colleague and uh, spent, I think he was like, can you brainstorm some things for me? So like probably meant for me to spend like 20 minutes. And instead I tried to think of every thought I could ever have about that topic over like five hours. And then I tried to like edit all of the wording so it sounded really clever and basically like I don't know criticized everything about it as much as I could then address those criticisms to basically make it uh, as close to flawless as I could yeah yeah and it sounds like those mini behaviors that were like part of the package here the like the critiquing and the responding to critiques and whatnot were serving this function of essentially like reducing your anxiety about getting exposed. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So nice example, because this actually hits on something that's kind of crucial for making exposure go well, which is that the whole point is to engage with the tough thing without doing subtle avoidance moves, right? Oh, so like, interesting. Yeah. So, so with the spider example, it's like, if you like, you know, go through the spider exhibit at the zoo and you're like, oh, I'm... I'm near the spider and you're, you're sort of all crunched up and like looking through slits in your eyes and you're like, I looked at it. Oh, and as it's okay. As long as I know I can always run away. You, you're essentially just entrenching this, this fearful relationship with it. Right. And so if you, if you are talking to yourself in through the lens of like, yeah, I can brainstorm and send that back to him as long as I spend four hours on it and identify literally everything and then fix it and make it perfect. And then I'm okay. Right. That essentially like doesn't, it doesn't like get you the cash value of the exposure. Cause you've just learned that you are like 
okay, conditional on like a bunch of stuff that's unworkable. Yeah, and the conditional. What we're trying to, right. We're, we want to learn something more like unconditional okayness. Not like truly, literally no conditions, but like closer to that direction of like, I, I'm just gonna be okay, no matter what happens, right? And and this is actually why we need another skill when we're doing exposure, which is experiential acceptance. So the mind is super threat sensitive and great at threat management, right? And is always wanting to do these moves of like, get away from the scary thing, don't feel discomfort, which itself is this proxy for threat, right? Feel better, basically, avoid escape and so forth. Experiential acceptance is like the antidote to that. It's as applied to internal experience. So it's about deliberately relating to your internal experience with an attitude of openness and curiosity and willingness for whatever's there to arise. Oof, that sounds really hard. I know, it is. It is very hard. And it's exactly what's needed to be able to engage with an exposure and not do these little mini avoidances, right? Because you essentially have to build this this self-efficacy to like feel the feeling of I really want to like keep working on this doc. And this is like super uncomfortable. And like, nonetheless, I'm clicking share. I have to share. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Cool. Okay. Can we can we make that a even more concrete? So like, I guess the idea here is like with the doc, by, by spending way too much time on it, and by preemptively guessing at what someone's criticisms might be. I'm, I'm training my brain that like, if my colleague likes the doc, it's plausibly only because I spent too much time on it. Bingo. And I, um, yeah, and I like predicted the criticisms and addressed them in advance. Oh, and by the way, I totally would not have been able to handle the feeling of doing merely good enough because, and so I definitely didn't handle it, right? And you've like learned nothing about your ability to sit with that. <laughs> totally, totally. So it's like, it would still be terrifying to do the actual brainstorm. And like, I'm probably still not uh, competent enough without trying to be perfect to just like share my thoughts with my colleague. So I literally have done things like, okay, I'm not gonna spend four hours and I'm not gonna guess at all their criticisms, but I'm going to like share the doc with a bunch of caveats about how off the cuff this is and how like if I spent 20 more minutes, I'd probably think of a bunch more things as a way to protect myself from having a person just see the actual work that they asked for um, and maybe have that not be enough. And then I have this condition that's like, OK, it's OK to just brainstorm, but it's only OK if I caveat which isn't the full the full exposure. And so that that basically... is preferable to the 4 hour thing for sure. And like many of us do many of us do a little mini avoidances of emotional discomfort all the time and we're we're not here to exterminate all of that. But you're you're correct to functionally recognize that that has the effect of essentially training a slightly less useful lesson uh than like the full version of like I literally just brainstormed and sent it. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, I guess maybe something more. I don't spend four hours, but I still spend two. And that is still kind of um, protective. And it's costing me several hours. It's an improvement, but like keeps that conditionality in your head. And so then you have to 
just do the doc sharing? And then how do you do this uh, experiential acceptance thing? Yeah, nice. So yeah, behaviorally, you you do the basically the version of if Louisa were unencumbered by perfectionism and imposter syndrome, yet nonetheless did sincerely care about doing a good job and was like well calibrated on like how much effort is like reasonable to spend on various things. How much time would she take? And then you would like do the doc in that time and send it behaviorally. So internally, right, you'd be having to sit with a lot of uncomfortable thoughts and feelings, such as the one you just voiced, right? (laughs) And the attitude of experiential acceptance is, well, you can train this meditatively, where you are like in a formal seated session, looking in at emotional discomfort and greeting it and welcoming it with curiosity and openness. And you can also coach yourself in this attitude a little bit more informally. So Well, so I do this for myself. Like, let's say that I'm like responding to an email that feels aversive. I might say like, okay, um, noticing an urge to reread this thing again. Um, Yep, I hear that. My mind is saying this thing about like, this could be really stressful depending on how they respond. And that's diffusion, by the way. So I'm calling out like, here's a thought. And and then there's this, this attitude of like, I can be with this, right? So welcoming the feelings, like there's room enough for this. If it were meditative, it would be like, breathe into this. Let this feeling be next to me. Uh, Louisa here, quickly jumping in to define cognitive diffusion. So cognitive diffusion refers to a way of relating to your thoughts that's mindful. It's a stepped back stance where you recognize that a thought is a habit of the mind that may or may not be true and may or may not be a good guide for your attention and energy. And then from there, you choose what to do in the presence of the thought without trying to change it. And that's different from traditional CBT, where the emphasis is on disputing thoughts whose content you think is irrational. And you can also like ask, you know, is there anything useful to extract from this feeling? Certainly, we're not here to just say, you know, there's no information here. But the overall spirit is coexist with what's here and don't resist it. Don't, don't try to, you know, get it to go away as a condition for, for sending the doc. It's this, this duality of like, I can have this discomfort in my backpack as I walk towards the thing. Yeah. I'm just trying to really, really put myself in this moment um, where I'm like, I've done a quick brainstorm. I'm sharing it with my colleague. I just hate that they're going to see my my 20 minute brainstorm. Yeah, it makes me feel sick. It makes me feel anxious. It makes me. Oh, nice. Yeah. Go to the embodied piece. This is actually part of experiential acceptance is like contact with the raw felt experience. So if you were to imagine this, like in, in your physical body, what are you imagining? Like what, what shape does it have? What properties does it have? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I definitely feel sick. I want to flinch. I, I have a very strong impulse to distract myself. So like maybe I press enter on the send button or whatever, but I might then not be able to do work for a bit because I'm so distressed about it. And so I might have to go, I don't know, do something more consuming uh, to, to get distracted from the bad feeling. That's really common for me. Yeah, super, super good catch there, right? Because if you if you hit send and then like immediately go to Twitter or something, um, essentially you've lost some of the value of the, of the acceptance practice, right? 
and and potentially like taught yourself an unhelpful lesson, which is like I can do things as long as I like get away from it immediately afterwards, and that's not necessarily workable. Plus, it undersells you on a self-efficacy basis, right? We we ultimately are trying to build trust with ourselves about being able to be in proximity to hard feelings, and nonetheless choose what your next move is. I, I suppose if what you really wanted to do was like go to Twitter after this, if that was like values aligned, then that would be no problem. But my guess is that you have other uses of your time that would like arguably be more values aligned. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, probably I'd let myself off the hook if it was five minutes. But in practice, these things tend to be more like often it'll be an hour. It's like I lose an hour to an hour and a half, just anxiously avoiding the anxious thing I had to do. Um, sometimes it's like the rest of a work day. And that's like, really unhelpful. Super costly. Um, how do you get better at kind of tolerating the distress of it without running away? Yeah, it really is a lot of practice with with this experiential acceptance attitude, right? It's like saying, oh, hello again to this feeling. <laughs> okay. Back? Back already? All right, welcome. So noticing, noticing this tightness, ooh, super strong urge to like, you know, tab over to the news. All right, wow, this is physically painful. Okay, I can be with this. There's oftentimes an affirmation component, like I can be with this, or this is welcome, or there's room enough for this all. And it's it's a lot of that motion, as well as the behavioral pieces too. Like, you know, you, you'll presumably get some information after you share that brainstorm. That could be useful. Uh, right, right. Yeah, and it might either be uh, like, this talk is great, thanks so much. Um, and then that's, a helpful retraining for my brain that that kind of thing can go really well. It might not be that good. And then and then what do you And then that's a new opportunity that yeah, you can you can look directly at that discomfort and welcome that in and say, well, by golly, one of the risks of being efficient is that we sometimes get this negative feedback and can I be with that? We should be super clear here. We're not advocating like just suffering in principle or something. This is all in the service of making freer choices that are more guided by your values. So I do not encourage you to do exposure just for the sake of exposure. You don't think it's intrinsically valuable. Yeah. Maybe I could agree with an argument like that. But the one I'm making here is do it on the path to freedom, going in the directions you want to go. And so what happens over time if you practice this more? I've had the experience of getting positive feedback on things that I spent less time on, and that's felt very reassuring. I have never really mastered this skill of like, don't distract myself from the pain of having to share something that might be embarrassing to me. What's the, what are you working toward? Yeah, so in many cases, you'll, you'll notice some decrease in your distress, uh, and actually, that that used to be considered like the metric of progress in exposure therapy was distress habituation. So like literally, people would rate their subjective units of distress, and we would like graph it, and like it would go down with repeated trials. Um, but that's actually with with both new research and like the the more acty framing of like we're not exactly trying to get rid of all um, painful feelings. That's usually not thought of as the the main target of exposure these days. 
I think about the point of exposure and, and in fact, do descriptively see this when people do these techniques as increasing willingness, a willingness to be in contact with something uncomfortable and nonetheless exercise free choice, right? So in this case, it would be like a willingness to feel this doubt about what's going to happen and like nonetheless choose where you're going to put your eyeballs and it doesn't have to be something distracting. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So more and more instances where I just share the doc with my colleague and I know that it's probably going to feel bad, but I know that I can do anyways. And I also know that I guess that I can then get back to work afterward, even if it doesn't feel very good. When you distract yourself from emotional pain, your distress goes down when you when you engage in something distracting. So you're sort of like reinforcing an escape move and you miss out on some other information that you would otherwise get, which is that uncomfortable emotions don't stay high forever. And so you want to be able to watch the natural life cycle of emotion and like recognize that it actually does remit naturally. And and so you would you would in all likelihood start learning that. And it's also really common to have a sense of empowerment here, right? Like, heck yes, I did this thing, right? The the orientation is not that you're being victimized by your feelings. It's that you are building a capacity to be with so much wider a range of internal experiences, which is just really cool. And uh, yeah. Yeah, I like that framing. That does feel very motivating to me. Cool. Okay, that that's really, really helpful. Hopefully other people find it helpful as well. Yeah, I think I want to move right on to common issues. Yeah, uh, are there are there any other mental health issues that we that we haven't talked about yet that you think might be especially common among people trying to do, you know, lots of good with their careers? Yeah, so I think one that is potentially common because it kind of hides in plain sight is the risk of over intellectualizing, and I think that that's particularly likely to come up if you're someone who like has a lot of intellectual strengths. Uh, and that does seem true of this community of people trying to do a lot of good in their careers. I think that once again, we've got something that's useful in some contexts or to some degree and becomes less useful when it's over applied. So like, I guess a cost of over intellectualizing could be well, one thing could be that it misses out on like other types of information that's like nonetheless relevant to a choice. So like the example of you deciding whether to have kids, if you just consult the moral proof, you know, you get one answer. But when we actually look at workability, it's not the case that like all the relevant information is intellectual. Like some of it is emotional, right? Right, right. Yeah. Are there, are there any other examples of this and, and what, what the cost can be? Yeah. So I think another might be like spending more time than is actually like useful trying to build a super coherent like intellectual model of something when you could actually figure out a wise response without having like a complete model. So like, let's say like, you know, calculating the expected value of like a marginal hour of sleep versus like a marginal hour of work or something like that. That's a little bit of a caricatured example, but you can imagine where if someone's like very used to using their mind to do like these super quantified models and that that's actually powerful and necessary in other parts of their life, applying that to mental health might feel natural. And in fact, it's actually useful to be able to like inhibit some of that when well, if there's like a wise choice that's available that doesn't depend on that. 
And then I guess another thing is that like intellectualizing might have an emotion avoidant function depending on how it shows up, right? So like, let's say that you're dealing with some kind of anxiety or something like that, maybe like performance anxiety at at work. And you could like have a, you know, reflection or discussion in therapy that's like all about like, what's the logic of like status concerns and like, where does that come from in humans? And basically like engage with it on like a philosophical or intellectual level. And if that means that like, you're not doing the work of like just sitting with what it feels like to be socially anxious, you may be like doing yourself a disservice to kind of stay at this intellectual level. So That's the sort of thing that I would encourage listeners to kind of just watch for in their own experience. And I definitely catch myself in therapy, like staying on an intellectual level because it's comfortable too for me. Uh, And we all have to sort of just be mindful of that, of that risk. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What kinds of things uh, might you try with someone who, who does this move of over intellectualizing things? Yeah. Well, I think it would mostly be recognizing it together and having like a functional understanding of like, what are what are the costs and benefits of like, starting at that level. And then when it's happening, like catch it in flight and be like, this is that thing again. Uh, Do we want to like consent ourselves to continue an intellectual discussion? Or do we actually want to opt out and like hit this at an experiential level? Maybe one more thing to say here is like, a common mistake that I make and see other people making is acting as if having an intellectual understanding of a mental health issue is approximately most of the work when it's actually approximately none. Right? That feels familiar. Uh, and I say this with affection because therapists are more guilty than anyone of this very thing because we have great intellectual understanding. But the mistake happens when you go, oh, well, I, I, I know what needs to happen. And then there's like a unsaid end of the sentence that's like, so, you know, end of story, right? All of the value practically is in the experiential skills practice, like actually training in the relevant attitudes and the relevant behaviors. And that just like cannot be done except in a lived way. But this is just so common. And I think something to like deliberately watch out for. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I definitely regularly will be like, oh, I recognize the perfectionism here, or I recognize that's my imposter syndrome. And then I'm like, man, I'm so good at mental health. (laughs) I recognized it. (laughs) Sometimes I like notice that I'm just describing and not um, changing the thing or experimenting with a different reaction. But often I am just like, I'm done. <laughs> I noticed that I had a perfectionist tendency come up and like, I'm wise now. Well, and, and certainly give yourself well-deserved kudos. This is better than not noticing. And there's yet more value on the table. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that makes a bunch of sense. A lot of our listeners report struggling with a mental health issue that's not not so much about their anxiety yeah their anxiety and self perceptions but more about their anxiety about the the pressing problems that do really seem to exist in the world and how how wearing they are how tragic they are so um things like really grappling with the fact that millions of people die every year from preventable diseases and also things like there might be pandemics or advances in technology that really are catastrophic. Yeah. And 
it's one thing to understand those things on an intellectual level, but a whole nother thing to understand them on on an emotional level. I think a lot of a lot of people on my team at eighty thousand hours right now are really, really struggling with um, fear about how quickly AI might come and what the consequences of that might be. And yeah, I guess to start, um, is that is that something that you've observed? Yeah, a lot of my clients take existential risks extremely seriously and would agree that there's an appreciable chance that we'll face an existential catastrophe in our lifetimes. And in my observation, this isn't often the central reason bringing someone to therapy, at least not yet or not with me. I think there is a pretty natural tendency to compartmentalize here, which may actually be adaptive in some cases. Hmm. Right. Interesting. So maybe it's another one of those cases where the truth seeking might lead you to think that these problems are extremely scary, but the kind of more workable or realistic approach to holding them in your day-to-day life is not trying to keep that that reality about these risks super salient? I think it's about positioning that reality in a way that it pushes in the directions you're trying to go and doesn't keep you stuck. There is a way in which contemplating existential dread uh, or suffering or mortality can actually be psychologically helpful. So it can be clarifying of values. It can be energizing for taking action. I'm someone who thinks about death more than anybody I know in my personal life. And I still think I don't think about it enough. So really? Oh, interesting. Can you say more about that? Yeah. Well, in the sense that I think there's a real sense of urgency that is available if you really try to get in contact with the facts about the conditions we're in Mm. and that urgency, right? That can be really animating and can motivate you to, to do things that matter, to, to not do things that don't matter. And Mm -hmm. that said, we all have to understand our own context and, and whether we are relating to existential dread to the degree that's personally meaningful and useful or too much or too little. Right. Because right. I guess if you go back to the fight, flight and freeze responses, you might be so afraid that you, yeah, afraid of these existential risks that you want to fight really hard against them. Yeah. And that could be motivating or you might so be so afraid of them that you freeze. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't work on them or that you want to run away from thinking about these problems. Yeah. And I, I guess... Yeah, as part of the process, figuring out where, well, what your responses are like yeah. and, and where you want to lean into. Exactly, exactly. You can you can understand the, the feeling of dread, right, as a pointer to something that matters, right? When, whenever you're hurting, ask what's under threat. And here, well, what's under threat is, is quite a lot, right? Yeah, So right. one way I think you can work helpfully with existential dread is to ask, how do I export this sense of urgency into actions that are, that are available to me, right? So what, if you're, if you're, you know, horrified at the suffering of non-human animals or, or like really aghast at, you know, the risk of AI, 
this could motivate you to do work in those areas or to encourage other people to take them seriously. And then the, the wise discernment comes in around at what point have we crossed into the area of no longer helpful, right? So there are levels of existential dread that are just painful and not helpful, right? It's actually not better for you to be in a chronic state of physiological arousal. And it's also not better for you to merely be ruminating, right? So in those cases, I think there's a a role for a compatible but different skill, which is mindful compartmentalizing. It's kind of like the the healthy version of thought suppression. Interesting. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. How does that work? So this is helpful for any case in which your mind really wants to worry about something that is not action relevant in all the moments it's presenting. And that applies to a lot of things, right? A lot of things. Including X risk. So the move is to not to never think about it, but to commit to looking at the thing in a way that is constructive and deliberate and protected. It's as if you're corralling all of the pointless (laughs) rumination that's just polluting your airwaves and concentrating it into a dedicated block. So you literally schedule time to sit down and look at the thing. (laughs) And during that time, you can constructively problem solve, right? So you can actually work on the problem or schedule you know, actions that you can take in the future or something like that. Hmm. And if there's nothing that can be done, you can just sit in compassion uh, or seek social support during that time. Right. So are you literally like booking calendar time? Yeah, literally. You call it worry time. You could put it on your calendar. Huh. Okay. And the thing that you're doing in that worry time is either something like, I'm worried about this risk and there's something I can do to help. Yep. And so here's my plan. Um, Maybe it all fits in this hour. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's a project I can do at work. Yep. Or maybe it's applying for jobs to try to work on that problem. Maybe there's not anything you can do about it. And then it's, I guess, time boxing, the amount of time that you spend really feeling grief or whatever it is. Exactly. Okay, Mm -hmm. cool. Huh. Yeah, I haven't. That's new to me. Yeah. And and then it's outside of your worry time. How do you relate to these thoughts, right? Right, right. Because they'll still come up, surely. Right. Oh, oh, absolutely. Yes. Thank you, mind. Right. Because the mind thinks maybe you forgot. Right. right. <laughs> so Did you forget that millions of people die all the time. Because yeah. it's a really big deal. Yeah. I, I mean, no, no lie. Like even you just saying that my mind just went, oh shit, like, right. You really need to like put a calendar event so you remember later. Right. It's like, this is just really how this works. Right. Right. Yeah. So we can use diffusion and some redirecting to the present in these cases. Right. So if you're, if you're out trying to have fun, let's say, and you recognize that suddenly the mind is talking about existential risk, right. This is a time where you could go, actually, I'm at this concert. So thanks, mind. I recognize you want to make sure I don't I don't forget. And believe me, I, I haven't forgotten. And we will think about AI tomorrow during worry time. And for now, I'm going to enjoy this song. Right. Yeah, nice. Yeah. There's nothing I can do about AI during this song. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. nothing I can do right now. I wanted to talk a bit about how you think about mental health and well-being more broadly. So yeah, are there any theories that you think explain why humans struggle with mental health and well-being as much as we do? 
Yes, there are many theories. And the ones I find most useful start with an acknowledgement that uh, pain and difficulty is built in at the base layer. So the uh, the headline might be, the mind was not designed for well-being. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the mind was designed for fitness or the things that supported fitness for most of human history. So here I mean things like physical survival, especially, but also things like social cohesion and dominating the environment. And I'm not an evolutionary psychologist, so forgive me if my framing is a bit coarse here, but I do find it useful and resonant with how I think about clinical issues. So a big example here is how the mind handles threat detection and threat management, which we are amazing at. (laughs) So if you think about what made for a fit early human right? It's always scanning the horizon. So you see the next predator or enemy always ready to run or hide or fight. Better safe than sorry policy. So if something's ambiguous, the guy who who uses caution survives more than the one who doesn't. And certainly sensitivity to social threats. So rejection or status concerns. And these are the sort of threat sensitive minds we're still walking around with. Yeah. So I guess our brains spent a lot more time with a lot more threats and was incentivized to play it safe than it has um, in the world we live in now where there aren't that many things that really, really threaten us. There are probably really, really very few things that threaten our survival. And at least on a moment to moment basis. Right, right, right. And then probably also somewhat fewer things that threaten our reproductive fitness. Yeah, I'm always kind of surprised that that social threats are as like hot to my brain as they are, given that, I mean, maybe I just don't know that much about like historical societies. Like, is it the case that there was a risk of abandonment or being ostracized (laughs) so much that like, we still now are just constantly like, uh, I mean, at least maybe it's not everyone, Uh, at least for me, um, Mm -hmm. someone with social anxiety, I feel like surprised that that threat system is so sensitive to the social stuff. Yeah, I actually don't know as a matter of sort of magnitude of risk historically. But I think something to flag here is we're talking about processes that are automatic and and rapid and sort of not mediated by like an intellectual, you know, appraisal of threat, right? So you may logically understand that it's like, okay, for your physical integrity, if people reject you, but that's like not how the machine works, right? Right. So I think we're oftentimes going to see this sort of gap between like an intellectual uh, level of understanding and sort of a felt sense of like, yeah, but this is right. So a sense of, yeah, felt threat. Yep, 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 yep. Interesting. Uh, I like that you used a positive framing when kind of opening this idea, the idea that we're amazing at detecting threats. I tend to be like, what is wrong with you threat system? You're overreacting. Mm, And mm -hmm. probably even that is like not super helpful to it. Yeah, let's talk more on this front, because I think that having a sort of adversarial relationship with a mind that's not serving us Mm -hmm. can make us hurt more. And there really is a way to have some sort of humorous affection for this mind of ours and recognize that it's really trying so hard to serve us. 
Yeah. So, so speaking of things that are differ on the logical versus the felt level, mm-hmm. you've probably noticed that one of the things your system does when you feel under social threat is mobilize your fight, flight, or freeze system, right? So yes. this is like your autonomic nervous system is coming online being like, oh my God, we, we might have to do something, right? And you're essentially getting physically ready to face uh, a threat as if it's a predator on the savanna, right? So ready to run away, uh, maybe freeze and, and stay out of view or check out your next move or maybe kill it. And this this system reflects the basic orientation to threat that, that we now use all the time, which is get away from the thing, right? right. And you can think of it kind of like uh, like an overactive smoke alarm, your your threat detection mind goes off for fire, it goes off for smoke, and it goes off for like things that maybe smell a little bit like smoke or kind of feel <laughs> like they remind you of smoke. Yes, that definitely feels super true in my experience. And the over oversensitive smoke alarm is a metaphor that um that I've used in my therapy before um, nice. and I found super helpful. Yeah, I just find it very I guess I find it confusing and surprising that it is best for my fitness um, to have as much uh, fear and fight and flight instinct as I do. It feels like it, they kind of come out constantly and they're overwhelming and they stop me from doing a bunch of things I care about. And, um, you know, maybe again, we'll we'll get into kind of being more grateful to that part of me at some point. But it just kind of surprises me that that's all, I don't know, optimal, but I guess, Mm -hmm. or not even just optimal, but like that it even was selected for as much as it was. But I guess it's just really hard to, to really, really deeply understand um, and believe the extent to which our brains were molded in an incredibly different environment, especially the part of the brain that's doing the fight flight response, which I guess is a very deep and old part. So maybe that's part of what's going on. And recognizing too, that as a matter of fitness, wellness was just not that relevant, right? Right. You can do exactly miserable creatures can can do a lot on a fitness right. level, right? And I think this is just deeply unintuitive because we very naturally don't want to be miserable. So in some sense, the, the confusion here is like just a rearticulation of the original <laughs> recognition, which is that there's a difference between wellness and fitness. Right. Yes, that actually that does make it a bunch clearer, because all of these things, the fight, the flight will be crude mechanisms and not perfect. The like downsides of having them aren't that big. Maybe maybe beings are sadder and more scared, but like that's not going to kill them or prevent them from reproducing, except maybe in some extreme cases. So maybe some of the most extreme uh, effects of these kinds of responses have been cut off, but not the moderate ones where we're just kind of like low level anxious all the time. Yep, that sounds right. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Okay, well, that is... Huh. How do I think about that? I guess that's a bit sad to me. The fact that as a default, our brains aren't totally aligned with us uh, and our desire to be well, but understanding that seems important. I don't know. Do you have another framing for that? um, That's, that's less sad. Well, my framing does start with sadness and sort of like um, bemusement, like seriously, Mm. this this was the setup, right? Uh, But I think the place this can get to is compassion, 
right? Like we, we act as if we should be perfectly calibrated to our environments and that not being so is some kind of failing. But when we recognize like, oh man, like the conditions we're in, these, these are wild and we're running this machinery that kind of hurts all the time. Like, golly, we really deserve some kindness here. Right. Oh, um, well, that reminds me of a related question I've wondered about. For a long time, I used to think of my emotions as much more grounded in kind of real or true things than I do now, kind of like physics. A bad thing happens and then you feel sad about it as a result. Yeah. How do you think about emotions? Uh, what, what are they? What do they mean? What do they tell us? The function of an emotion is to orient attention to the thing, to the stimulus, and then to organize and mobilize the appropriate response. So in the case of a positive emotion, like let's say you're with somebody and you feel a feeling of love, maybe this motivates a response that's like, take care of this person, keep them around. And then in the case of an aversive emotion, like fear or disgust, the function is to get you to do those threat management techniques that the mind is great at. So avoid it, escape it, control it, suppress it, right? Spit out the poison tasting food or run away from the thing that might be dangerous or don't go any nearer to the edge of the cliff. And it's this felt sense of unpleasantness that animates that machinery. Right. But one effect of that is that internal discomfort becomes like a proxy for threat and resolving internal discomfort becomes like a proxy target. So we end up in this regime where we're trying in effect not to feel bad. And as we'll talk about, this can kind of get us in trouble. The claim here is not like, oh, your emotions are like outdated from evolution and you should just not update at all when you have an emotion or something. It's more like an emotion is a pointer. It's wise to investigate, but remember that what you find there may not be the thing that it suggests. And so we can sort of have appreciation for our emotions as that sort of directional pointer and then wisely check out is this pointing to something I need to react to and make that decision as a matter of choice rather than the smoke alarm goes off and you run from the building? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes a bunch of sense. Yeah. So I guess if they're like pointers, yeah, I guess we, it means that we have to find a way to use them. Yeah, I guess usefully or wisely, mm -hmm. as you put it, but not take everything they point at at face value. So how do we figure out how to engage with them? How do we figure out when they're pointing at something real, when they're pointing at something unhelpful? That's a huge question with many answers, right? So some of this is a matter of trying things and learning by experience. Some of it's a matter of understanding your own history and your own emotional calibration. So is my system like really hair triggered by this one particular thing? And a lot of this is even remembering that we have the option to choose how we respond. So some of the therapy skills are around keeping a sort of thoughtful, healthy skepticism type of distance from emotions. So we can ask questions like, if I buy into this feeling and do exactly what it's suggesting, where's that going to take me? And is that a place I'm, I want to go? I do think there's a role for trusting and appreciating our emotions, remembering that, of course, they are functioning for this purpose of taking care of us. And 
something pretty important here is that the sorts of threat management techniques that work really well on predators on the savanna don't actually work so well on internal experience. So we said that a felt sense of threat becomes like a proxy for threat, right? Yeah, yeah. But when you try really hard to run the script, don't feel bad inside, that it actually doesn't work that well. And, and that's for a couple of reasons. So for one, we don't have direct control over internal experience or all aspects of it, right? So you can't, you can't give directions to your nervous system. You can't choose your next thought. You can't suppress thoughts directly, at least not forever. And, and attempts to sort of brute force control over your nervous system can often backfire. So if you're yeah. afraid of panic attacks and you say, stay calm, you know, right. no, no matter what, or if you, right, if you try to suppress a specific thought, the thought don't think of X becomes a cue for X. So it's not that workable to avoid internal experience the way you would avoid a threat. And then if you do get into habits of avoiding feeling badly emotionally, these can actually teach you in some sense the wrong lessons. So like, let's say you're socially anxious and somebody invites you to a party and your your smoke alarm goes off and it's like, this is a potentially socially threatening situation. You should get ready to run. People aren't going to like you. Yep. Yeah, people aren't going to like you. This, this could be a threat. And if you then decline the invitation, you will be handsomely rewarded by a sense of relief immediately, right? And that is reinforcing that sense of the anxiety went away. Right. But then if you learn this as a habitual coping strategy, you're internalizing this lesson that's like, I can't be anxious at parties. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, you haven't acquired any skills for party going or tolerance for being at parties and being anxious. Right, right. And probably get further entrenched in the belief that you that you would would suck at a party. <laughs> that yes, you would. yes, because you get no disconfirmatory evidence. Are there other examples of ways our brain has um, kind of evolved to be or to at least seem unhelpful with regards to our mental health and well-being. You'll notice a pattern, which is that the unhelpful stuff is a helpful process that's over-applied or excessive. So a couple more tendencies of the mind uh, that fit that description. So the mind is constantly telling stories, constantly modeling the world, constantly judging, categorizing, this thing's good, this thing's bad. Oh, there's a potential obstacle. How would I get around it? And... This is useful as a matter of navigation, and it also can condition some emotional responses uh, because the mind's perception of what's going on can itself be wrapped into this threat detection or threat management machine. And we are creatures that learn by association, which is, which is great and uh, useful and efficient. And that's a reason that internal representations of threat or things that have been associated with threat in the past can take on sort of a conditioned uh, aversiveness because of that association, right? So this applies to things like, you know, smells and, and places and uh, words, and it applies to imagining, let's say you imagine you're going to fail or you tell yourself, I'm worthless. This feels like an encounter with failure or worthlessness and language and the mind's tendencies to model everything all the time just supercharges all of that. So we're walking around sort of swimming in 
painful associations. And then zoom out and recognize the landscape that we're in too. So here's a feature of the world that makes everything more difficult is that if you've noticed on the map of life, (laughs) Mm -hmm. the stuff of flourishing tends to be located right with the stuff of pain, right? So loving relationships require vulnerability. Uh, Trying to achieve something that matters requires being in proximity to disappointment and risk and uncertainty. And this connection between values and pain is pretty fixed, right? There aren't really paths we can find that reliably get us the good stuff and minimize risk of the painful stuff. Right. Plus, there's 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 chaos and tragedy uh, everywhere, and we can't control it. So this means like even the wisest and luckiest among us are gonna be bumping into pain everywhere we go, especially if we're trying to navigate towards something that matters. Right. So right. We're walking around with these threat sensitive, judgmental minds. We're running a program that's like try not to hurt, it's a pretty absurd state of affairs. And it leads to this this bottom line, which is like psychological suffering isn't an aberration. On the default settings, it's the default outcome. Right. Yeah. And again, I'm, I'm needing to remind myself that it's important to respond to that with compassion rather than what I initially feel, which is Frustration, anger, disappointment. Yeah. I guess probably just all of those things are allowed. And then again, as we kind of mentioned earlier, this does all get trickier in a context where we're talking about spending your careers on trying to address really, really, really important global problems. Yeah. So to the extent that this thing you're saying is true, and when we get close to things we value, uh, we're more likely to hit up on pain. We... Yeah, we might expect this this effort we're all trying to collaborate on to be to be hard. That's right, um, and that seems to be that seems to be true. Um, cool. Well, to wrap up, uh, final question: um, Do you have a favorite thought experiment? Ooh, yeah, I do have one actually that is a good fit for this conversation because it's kind of like a values clarification tool, which is Nietzsche's formulation of eternal recurrence. Okay, so philosophers, forgive me, this is how I remember it. Uh, It's basically like, okay, if a demon came to you and was like, your life is gonna repeat in the exact same way that you live it over and over again forever. Would that be a good or a bad thing? Where maybe the idea is, I think it's like you should seek to live in such a way that right. that would be a good thing. A good thing. Okay. Uh, but the way that I use it on myself is to ask, like, how does this action score on eternal recurrence? <laughs> right. Oh, so wow. would I still endorse doing this if I had to relive it forever? And it's not a perfect thought experiment, right? There's there's some things like maybe important, painful things that you wouldn't wish to relive, but nonetheless are justified or something. But man, it totally makes it more vivid uh, and is helpful for me for like kicking out of like doing mindless things that aren't like really serving me. Uh, because just in the starkness of infinity, it's like so much easier <laughs> to see that. Yes, yes, you're absolutely right infinity wild (laughs) stuff um yeah is the original thought experiment used in the context of 
people trying to figure out how how to live their lives or I have no idea um, does it okay no worries no worries <laughs> I'm sorry <laughs> totally fine um just curious it's a thought experiment I've never heard yes. of um, I mean I actually don't even think it's a thought experiment by the way like I don't think it, it wasn't designed as such but yeah go go ask like the many people you know who have professional philosophy degrees <laughs> what's going on here why do people think about this yeah yeah cool Cool. Well, that is all the time we have. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Hannah. It's been such a pleasure. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. If you're interested in more practical mental health advice, you could check out episode 100 on the original feed, where my colleague Kieran interviews my other colleague Howie on having a successful career with depression, anxiety, and imposter syndrome. And episode 149, where Rob interviews Tim LeBon on how altruistic perfectionism is self-defeating. All right. Audio mastering and technical editing by Dominic Armstrong and Ben Cordell. Editing for this episode by a combination of Katie Moore, Kieran Harris, and myself. Full transcripts and an extensive collection of links to learn more are available on our site and put together by Katie Moore. And Kieran Harris produces the show. Thanks for listening.